I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing a security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank... Uh... That fell down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hello and welcome to this instalment of the Australian Crisis Simulation Podcast for 2022. My name is Alex Bully. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Our team has selected these podcast topics to provide insight and knowledge relevant to the ACSS Summit in December. Today, I have the privilege of sitting down with distinguished guest, Dr. Benjamin Herskovich, to discuss the Solomon Islands Chinese Security Agreement and its strategic implications for China, Australia, and the region. Ben is a research fellow jointly appointed to the ANU National Security College and the School of Regulation and Global Governments, known as RegNet. His primary areas of research are Australia-China relations, China's economic statecraft, and Australian foreign and defense policy. He is a member of the ANU Working Group on Geoeconomics and RegNet Centre for International Governance and Justice. Prior to joining ANU, Ben was an analyst and policy officer at the Australian Department of Defence, specialising in China's external policy and Australia's defence diplomacy. He was previously a researcher for Beijing-based think tanks and consultancies. Ben holds a Bachelor of International Studies from the University of New South Wales and a PhD in Political Theory from the University of Sydney. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Thank you so much, Alex. It's great to be with you and wonderful to be with all of your listeners. Absolutely. Well, let's get straight into the swing of things. At the time of the agreement, Australia was in the midst of a federal election campaign, which led to the agreement between Beijing and Honiara being highly politicised. Some would argue that this took away the importance of acknowledging the intent and finer details of the agreement. To start things off... What is the nature and significance of the security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China? And how does it reflect Beijing's foreign policy of expansion in the region? This is a really good question. And I think you're absolutely right that this issue of precisely what the security agreement means for the region as a whole and for Australia specifically was very much lost in the sound and fury of what was a pretty intense election campaign. And it was one of those really striking instances in Australian politics where foreign defence policy writ large takes centre stage in domestic political debates. Typically, the old consensus view was that in Australia, foreign defence policy are a matter of bipartisan consensus. Mm. Neither side of politics really tries to make domestic political mileage off defence and foreign policy issues. But in that campaign, with the coalition government against the ropes looking for all sorts of different issues to land punches on Labor, this issue of a security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China was something that was seized upon as a way of highlighting the perilous circumstances for Australia. And I think also there was an issue in the commentariat in Australia more broadly where because the security agreement was such a dramatic development, there was a really strong reaction and a lot of high-strung rhetoric surrounding it and a lot of fear and loathing as to what it would mean. If we pair all of that back and try and get beyond the political sound and fury and the overblown rhetoric, 
it is really hard to say precisely what the security agreement means for Australia or for the region because we have relatively little detail as to the long-term significance of it and what Beijing seeks to achieve with this security agreement. And of course, the precise configuration of what China is doing with Solomon Islands via this security agreement will evolve over time. But I think all that preface out of the way, we can say at the very least that the security agreement indicates the scope and scale of China's ambitions for not just the region, but the globe as a whole. China is in the business of building a truly world-class military that will be capable of projecting power around the globe and certainly in Australia's near region in Southeast Asia, in the South Pacific. And if you're in the business of trying to build a world-class military with global power projection capabilities, you are going to need, of necessity, a whole host of locations where you can resupply, where you can replenish, where you can potentially also conduct repairs on your vessels, and where you can also provide the opportunity for sailors and officers to get off the vessels and have some leisure time and get to a port, and also seek to use your military power for diplomatic purposes. So, this security agreement between Solomon Islands and China fits into that overarching ambition from Beijing to have a military that can go all over the globe and project power all over the globe. In the debate around the security agreement, there was a lot of speculation as to what in concrete terms China would seek to do with the security agreement, whether it would involve some kind of PLA listening post in Solomon Islands that would allow the PLA to collect intelligence on the Australian Defence Force or China to collect intelligence on Australia more broadly, whether it would be something that would be built into a more permanent military presence of some kind. All of those kinds of configurations are possible longer term, but right now what the security agreement entails is relatively modest in implications. It's about China being able to, with the permission of Solomon Islands, have its military vessels arrive in Solomon Islands and receive support and assistance and logistics and refuel and the like. And it also allows for the possibility of China to contribute to stabilization missions and security uh, contributions in Solomon Islands in moments of crisis. But again, there is the requirement that Solomon Islands consent to that and request that. And I think that's an important point to dwell in in all of this, that the agreement is a really significant development and it is part and parcel of this big overarching macro ambition that China has for its military and the world at large. But the particulars of the security agreement are relatively modest and in all instances require the consent and support of Honiara to achieve concrete outcomes for China. No, absolutely. I think that's great analysis of, of the agreement itself. I just sort of want to touch on the point you mentioned earlier of, of the PLA expansion, sort of being the cornerstone of China's expansion in the region. I'd like to get an understanding of what is the likelihood of China escalating the agreement to a PLA present, basing presence in Honiara. This is a critical question, and it will be at the forefront of senior bureaucrats in the Australian government and ministers in the Australian government and probably even the forefront of the prime minister's mind in that Solomon Islands is very close to Australia. 
it is a part of the world which is strategically significant for Australia in terms of Australian shipping passing through waters either within Solomon Islands or proximate to Solomon Islands. And the South Pacific, of which Solomon Islands is a part, is a region where Australia sees itself as being effectively the preeminent power. It likes to talk about Australia being the, the preferred security partners for countries in the South Pacific. So the prospect of China parlaying the security agreement into a permanent PLA presence of some kind or into a permanent PLA base is immensely significant for Canberra. And you can be absolutely certain that there are tens, if not hundreds of analysts and policy people in Canberra today thinking about this very issue mm. as part of their full-time jobs. It is possible, but I am inclined to be relatively cautious on what China will be able to get over the line on this front. In the wake of the security agreement between Solomon Islands and China, we've seen a huge amount of regional media and political scrutiny of the deal. We've seen quite a bit of criticism in Australia and in other countries in the region. And we've seen a lot of consternation internally in Solomon Islands in relation to the security agreement. And all of that doesn't mean that we definitely won't have the evolution of this security agreement into some kind of enduring PLA access or maybe even a PLA base. We have to consider that as a possibility longer term, but there are so many hurdles for Beijing to leap over if it's going to achieve that kind of outcome with Honiara. That's the first part of it. I think we have this resistance domestically in Solomon Islands, resistance in Australia, a very influential country in the region, mm -hmm. and broader mm -hmm. regional resistance, as well as resistance from external powers like Japan or the United States. That's one big basket of reasons for, I think, being relatively cautious about the prospects of China getting a presence or permanent base. The other big aspect of it is that I'm not convinced, and this is a somewhat speculative point, but I think it's one that is important to inject into the conversation. I'm not convinced that Beijing actually wants a permanent PLA base in Solomon Islands or even necessarily a enduring access arrangement. And the reason for that is that China has a long-standing, well-resourced, determined strategy of acquiring access options for the PLA around the globe and bases for the PLA around the globe. Yeah. It's not entirely clear based on that that the South Pacific and Solomon Islands in particular are priority areas for China. This part of the world is not proximate to critical sea lines of communication mm. for China. The focus there is understandably on the Indian Ocean and on Southeast Asia and on the Middle East and East Africa more broadly. There is a diplomatic reason maybe for ramping up security engagement or defense engagement with Solomon Islands and engaging in a diplomatic sense. So Beijing recently flipped Honiara over to its side in recognizing China and there are advantages for China in cultivating that new relationship with Solomon Islands. Yep. But there are, I don't think, really strong rationales to devote serious resources to acquiring a PLA base there. And part of that is that if we look at the macro strategy that China has in place for providing the PLA with the ability to project power globally, a big focus is on the commercial aspect of it and not on having a permanent PLA presence or a PLA base. And what I mean by the commercial aspect of it is having preferred relationships with ports around the globe, many of which are 
owned or controlled by Chinese companies that allow the PLA to dock regularly, to get fuel, to uh, resupply, and also in some instances to receive repair and have technical assistance provided. So it's not clear that Honiara would be plugging a big gap there for China in that regard. There are so many other options globally, and there isn't necessarily a strong rationale for the PLA to be regularly in the region. Having said that, I think those are the two big reasons for being relatively cautious on this. There is one reason, I think, for thinking much more seriously from Australia's point of view about the long-term consequences of a permanent PLA presence or PLA base, and that is that even though Beijing may not have Solomon Islands as a core priority in this regard, and even though there are many other options for China, Beijing and the PLA are relatively opportunistic when it comes to opportunities to acquire PLA basing. And what I mean by that, it's not to say that it's a pejorative thing. It's just that when China's looking at the world, there are so many countries where there is no chance of China acquiring a PLA base. There's a lot of resistance, a lot of suspicion mm-hmm. in many quarters. Yeah, yeah. And what that entails from Beijing's point of view is that you have to look at countries where there is a realistic chance of getting something across the line where the political elites are maybe more amenable to your view of things or maybe can be conjoled in your direction or maybe where the country is in the business of offering up real estate for foreign militaries. Yeah. And so if the political conditions domestically in Solomon Islands were conducive to the government evolving the security agreement to mm-hmm. say, okay, the PLA, you can have this dedicated wharf and maybe you can have a base longer term. Beijing would presumably say, all things being equal, we don't have that many options in the Indo-Pacific. We'll seize upon this option when it presents itself. And the key question then becomes, what's going to happen domestically in Solomon Islands yeah, in this absolutely. regard? And I don't know that we have a good read on that because the current prime minister seems relatively capricious and Mm. it seems like this is a matter which is subject to intense scrutiny and there are a lot of diverse views within Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. And so I think this lends itself to much more careful, considered analysis and engagement with various different communities and politicians and business communities in Solomon Islands to see where this trajectory is going long term. But certainly if conditions were right for Beijing to get something across the line, I imagine that China would seize on that opportunity. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're really focused on a great point there of domestic political situation, particularly in Honiara under Sogavare. It is quite mixed and, and icy at the moment. I think you really focused on that point quite well. Sort of in your response earlier, you mentioned uh, the policymaking in, in, in Canberra and their approach to it, sort of just trying to draw the conversation back home. In the Canberra policymaking arena, much of the policy implemented addresses the so what notion. What are the implications for Australia and how should Australia approach the security agreement? What form will this take and how will this impact future Australia-China relations? This, again, is a critically important question. That question of the so what is undoubtedly at the forefront of many minds here today in Canberra. Taking the second part of the question first, I think it is fair to say that this issue of the China Solomon Islands Security Agreement has emerged as yet another point of contention in the bilateral Australia-China relationship. Beijing clearly wants to deepen its ties with Honiara and wants to be in a position to expand security cooperation between China and Solomon Islands. Canberra is very much opposed to that, very suspicious of it. And there'll be long-term 
intense lobbying by both Beijing and Canberra to sway Honiara more in their direction. And that will, in all likelihood, emerge as a pretty significant friction point between the Chinese and Australian governments. Having said that, it fits into a broader regional dynamic where that kind of contest is playing out. So the specific issue of the China-Solomon Island Security Agreement will be a wrinkle in the Australia-China relationship. But I think the more significant issue is the fact that the Chinese government and the Australian government are now really at loggerheads over whether China has a legitimate security role to play in the South Pacific. Yeah. The Australian government, new government, a bit softer on China, at least rhetorically speaking, mm-hmm. but arguably the new foreign minister, Penny Wong, and her colleagues in the Albanese government have been as tough, if not tougher, on China in the South Pacific than yeah. the previous Morrison government in yeah. talking about the fact that security in the Pacific is essentially to be provided by the Pacific family itself. Mm. And that mm. is, by extension, a delegitimization of China's role in the South Pacific. Canberra, in no uncertain terms, is saying, Beijing, you need to stay out of this. You do not have a legitimate security role to play in the region. This is for us to do in partnership with our Pacific partners. Now, that understandably is a very frustrating proposition for China. China has incredible capabilities and global ambitions and seeks to play a security role around the world and seeks to develop its security partnerships with countries in the South Pacific. So that's an affront from China's point of view. And I think the agreement between Honiara and Beijing is kind of a microcosm of that broader contest between Beijing and Canberra as to what is a legitimate, acceptable and appropriate mm. role for China in the South Pacific. And that's going to bubble away and that's going to be a source of pretty intense, enduring tension in the Australia-China relationship. And you can add that to a very long list of issues that are weighing that relationship down from the Chinese government's foreign interference in Australian politics to Australia's security considerations in its investment review decisions, Australia's stance on the South China Sea, human rights, et cetera. The list is very long. Yeah. So the agreement, the broader question of China's role in the South Pacific will inevitably weigh on the bilateral relationship, but it's just one of many serious complications for Australia and China as they seek to manage what is a really testy, fraught relationship between those two capitals. In terms of the broader long-term so what for Australia, and I guess the subsidiary question of what Australia should be doing about it, I think it is important for policymakers in Canberra and for the public at large in Australia to keep two sometimes competing thoughts in the mind at the same time. One is the thought that given the scale of China's ambitions and given the staggering level of resources that China can devote to its ambitions for PLA presence and basing around the world. It is unrealistic, I think, ultimately, for the Australian government or for any government to expect to be able to stop the PLA acquiring access arrangements and basing options everywhere in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. China is, has an incredibly well-resourced military that has global ambitions and in all likelihood, despite the best efforts of Canberra and Washington and other capitals, the PLA will find basing and access options. But that's not to say that we should complacently say, well, China will get what it wants in relation to PLA basing and access. Therefore, we ought to do nothing. The question I think becomes, and this is a really pointy question for Australian policymakers, but also the Australian public at large, how much resources should we devote to this task of trying to shape and deter PLA access and basing in our region specifically, but in Mm -hmm. the globe more broadly? And 
where are the red lines for us? So I think it would potentially be realistic to say having a permanent PLA base in Solomon Islands is crossing a strategic military red line for Australia, given the proximity to Australia, given the importance of that country to Australia. However, maybe a PLA base in a place like Cambodia isn't crossing that red line. And so the Australian government would want to devote much more diplomatic and economic resources to forestalling a PLA base in Solomon Islands, but maybe wouldn't want to do the same in relation to Cambodia. And I think we are only at the very start of a difficult conversation in Australia, both about accepting the reality of a very significant expanded role for the PLA in the region of the globe at large, but also figuring out precisely which instances of that PLA basing and access we want to devote resources to stopping and which ones we say it's not worth the fight and moreover the negative strategic implications for Australia aren't worth all that expended energy and the burnt diplomatic relations that might flow from it. And just very briefly on that final point of the possibility of burnt diplomatic relations, I think one of the key takeaways that comes out of the kerfuffle in relation to the China-Solomon Islands Security Agreement is that there is a risk for Canberra and not so much for Australian political leaders and policymakers, but more so for the Australian media and Australian commentators and analysts Mm, mm. in being overly forward-leaning in their criticisms of other countries for engaging with China. I think it is deeply counterproductive from the point of view of Australia's regional diplomacy to be overly... uh, inclined to chase in other countries and to criticize them in really strong terms for deepening their security engagement with China. Canberra needs to be able to say, look, there is an understandable reason why a capital like Honiara would want to engage with China in security terms. There are logical domestic security capacity building reasons for doing that. We respect that. We acknowledge that. But on the other hand, there are potential risks and dangers associated with that for that country in particular, but also the region more broadly and to, in a calmer and more considered way, make those cases and also do it in a way which is more respectful of the autonomy and sovereignty of countries in the region. Australia doesn't have the influence or power to dictate what Cambodia does in relation to PLA access and basing or what Solomon Islands does on that front. And there has to be a certain amount of deference to the sovereign decisions of other countries, but then also... Uh, an awareness raising effort to highlight the potential dangers and risks associated with that, but always with an eye to not unnecessarily burning diplomatic relations with countries in our near region in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. Mm. No, absolutely. Looking more at the region, have nations such as Australia and the United States more broadly in the Indo-Pacific, have they been behaving with arrogance in the region, allowing for such agreement to be enacted? Is this being reflected in the overblown and unhelpful reaction to the Solomon Islands? It is a really important point to take the view from regional capitals on issues like this. I don't know that it would be fair to say that Australia has been arrogant per se or that the United States has been arrogant per se, but whenever I speak to analysts or commentators from Southeast Asia, for example, or officials from the South Pacific, the distinct impression that I get often is that there is a certain amount of cynicism vis-a-vis Australian messaging on China. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a big part of that is that Australian political leaders and policymakers and the broader Australian media milieu and academic and think tank communities 
often don't adequately appreciate the reasons why countries in the South Pacific or Southeast Asia would really enthusiastically embrace deeper trade and economic and investment and security and political ties with China. And part of that is that if you zoom out a little bit and consider this from a risk assessment point of view, from Australia's point of view, there are relatively limited risks in taking a harder security line on a range of China-related issues, whether that be things like excluding Huawei from infrastructure, Mm -hmm. whether that be on having more of a security input into investment review decisions. Of course, there are some diplomatic costs associated with doing that. Always. Always. But Australia has the financial wherewithal to provide that kind of infrastructure without relying on China and can weather the storm of that diplomatic and political blowback from China, as we've seen in recent years with the effective redirection of Australian exports to other markets. If you look at it from the point of view of Jakarta, you're at a very different development stage. Mm -hmm. You have much stronger of a focus on issues like providing cheap and reliable infrastructure, on providing jobs for the future, on bringing in new investment to your country when you have massive infrastructure shortfalls in a whole host of different arenas. And so that lends itself to a different risk assessment of the dangers of engaging with China and becoming dependent on China in a range of different arenas. It's almost a requirement, you could say, or a necessary to undertake. I think it's fair to say that for many countries in Southeast Asia or the South Pacific, for example, there aren't good alternatives that are being offered at the same kind of price point with the same kind of added benefits Mm -hmm, associated mm -hmm. with the provision of infrastructure or the investment. Some of the other work that I've been doing with other colleagues at ANU is focused on China's role in uh, ICT infrastructure in places like Indonesia. And we had extensive interviews with Indonesian officials and the message that came back over and over again was that if you're going to be relying on European companies or Japanese companies or American companies, you're going to be paying more and there won't be added benefits like free training thrown in as part of that mix. If you're going with Chinese companies, the price point will be lower and there'll be more added benefits for you. Of course, there's a security risk associated with that, but for policymakers in Jakarta, they're willing to bear that security risk for the sake of all the developmental benefits associated with it. And I think that is a kind of micro version of a larger macro story in the region whereby Mm -hmm. there is a really strong case for engaging with China on a range of fronts for countries in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. And it's important for Australia to understand that, to appreciate that, and to acknowledge that if you are at a different development stage, if you are more reliant on foreign capital for basic infrastructure, if you're more reliant on foreign companies for critical infrastructure, that will provide a much more compelling rationale to engage with China and even become dependent on China in a range of different arenas. And I think Australia's value add in all of this is not to say, don't engage with China, it's dangerous, don't become dependent on China, it's dangerous. It's rather to say, what can we usefully provide you that China isn't providing, but also what can we usefully do to help you manage the risks associated with yeah. deep dependence on China in a range of different arenas, as opposed to calling for that dependence to stop. And so in relation to the particular example of the China Solomon Island Security Agreement, I think there's probably a stronger case for Canberra to not say, don't do this, this is a bad deal, mm-hmm. but rather to say, 
what can we do to engage more deeply with you in the security arena as well? What can we offer you in that arena that you won't be able to get from Beijing? What is our value proposition in that regard? And also, can we help you manage the complexities and risks associated with that security agreement longer term? Mm, no, absolutely. Just on a shorter point, one of our other podcasts is discussing the China-Taiwan relationship. I'd be interested to incorporate your perspective as to how valid it is to potentially draw potentials between the agreement with the Solomon Islands and China and their approach towards Taiwan and Hong Kong. I think there are connections here. And part of it is that from Beijing's point of view, the considered opinion of countries around the globe on a range of issues matters deeply. Votes in the United Nations matter for China. Yeah. Having countries that are UN members recognize Beijing as the capital of China, recognize the PRC as the sole legal representative of China, that matters for Beijing. Mm. And winning over Honiara to Beijing's column in 2019 was a significant win for China and part of an overarching concerted strategy to isolate Taiwan diplomatically. And the security agreement inked between Honiara and Beijing to an extent flows out of that big significant shift, at least in the sense that if there wasn't that recognition of the PRC from Solomon Islands, we wouldn't have this security agreement right now. But longer term, now that the relationship between Honiara and Beijing is established, and now that they are achieving mutually beneficial outcomes mm. in their eyes from that relationship, the connectivity, I think, between the... China Solomon Islands security agreement and Taiwan scenarios is relatively limited. And certainly if you're talking about the hard power aspect of yeah. the Taiwan Strait as a security issue versus potentially ongoing presence for the PLA in Solomon Islands, the analogy I think falls apart yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think part of the problem in the Australian debate is that the whiff of a security agreement between China and Solomon Islands sent us into a frenzy of speculating about the prospect of hard, significant PLA force projection into the South Pacific and the yeah. possible military threat for Australia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that I think is taking us over many leaps of logic and to conclusions which we don't have a good empirical basis for thinking about yet. <laughs> Absolutely. Whereas from Taipei's point of view, mm -hmm. the military threat from Beijing is real, imminent, present, and right now. And so yeah. it's not academic in the case of Taiwan. It's not speculative. Whereas in the case of Australia, possible PLA presence in Solomon Islands, it is very speculative. Yeah, yeah. Two, two sort of very much different contexts for both, mm. for both capitals. Just to wrap up, are there any sources of information and news sources you would recommend to delegates and those listening if they wanted to find a deeper analysis on strategic issues such as the China security agreement with the Solomons? Really important question. Look, I think my first port of call in terms of analyzing what Beijing is thinking and what Beijing is seeking to achieve is an English language publication called the South China Morning Post, mm -hmm. the Hong Kong newspaper. Yeah. This is a publication which is increasingly influenced by the view from Beijing. So one should never see it as a totally 
impartial view of the world mm -hmm. as most media organizations are. It's compromised in certain ways and it's compromised in the sense of leaning in Beijing's direction. And that's particularly true after the abrogation of so many rights and freedoms in Hong Kong and the winding back of media freedom there. But it nevertheless remains, I think, the most incisive and insightful English language reporting on what policymakers and academic leaders and influential think tankers are writing about and thinking about in relation to China's grand strategy, including in the South Pacific. So I commend that to listeners as a way of getting a much more careful read on what China's grand strategy is seeking to achieve today, what it will look like in the future, yeah. and what China is planning for the world that we will all live in in years to come. The other thing that I think is really important is to engage as much as possible with voices from the region. In relation to Solomon Islands specifically, read what journalists in Solomon Islands are writing, read what commentators from Solomon Islands are arguing. And there are a number of good people to follow on Twitter. There are a number of great journalists who are writing about these issues. I, I think it's critically important to engage with regional perspectives on this yeah. front and to not be caught in a, a Washington DC or Canberra echo chamber on this because mm -hmm. the view from the region really matters deeply. And it matters because Australian policymakers and the public at large should be deeply concerned about the peoples and countries in our region and should have their best interests at heart. But it also matters in a self-interested, pragmatic, strategic sense in that if we don't understand what the region thinks, our foreign defence policies will be much less effective. To truly be able to shape the region and influence the region in ways that suit Australian interests, Australia needs to have a really deep and emphatic understanding of mm. what the region is thinking and be capable of truly empathizing with the perspectives from the region. I think that's certainly true in the case of Solomon Islands, but it's also true in the case of a range of Southeast Asian countries to spend more time reading output from think tanks in the region, from journalists in the region, and dip into as much as possible publications that are of the region as opposed to reading the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald or the New York Times, notwithstanding how great those publications are. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think that's a positively great note to finish off on. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. I hope everyone listening has found it incredibly valuable and insightful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and look forward to continuing the conversation. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.